as we focus on the scripture this morning in Matthew 13, this is one of those moments where we see Jesus in his um, ministry to his own people. He's at Nazareth. That's his hometown in the north. It's a rural town. Um, think, you know, kind of not populated intensely, not metro, very rural kind of, uh, I, I want to say hillbilly. That might be a little bit strong for this culture, but hardworking, simple folk might be a good way to think of it. So we come to Matthew 13. He's ministering among Galilee, kind of these more uh, metropolitan areas around the Sea of Galilee, and then he returns back to Nazareth. It's, it's into the country. It's overlooking a valley, and it's kind of this rocky um, elevated area above the, va- the Jezreel Valley in the northern area of Israel. So in verse 53, Jesus finished these parables. He went away from there. That's Galilee. Verse 54, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. As we consider what's going on in this passage Matthew is, is now turning a major corner. If you're to look from chapter 14 through chapter 19, he, he almost cycles back and forth between people embracing Christ and people rejecting Jesus as the Christ. And so we're going to see two rejections, one with Jesus himself, the next John the Baptist, and then it's going to be followed by interact, interaction where he's embraced or like, for instance, he feeds the 5,000 and people love it. And so we go back and forth kind of cycling through rejection and acceptance. Well, this is clearly one of those rejection passages. So as we consider this story, Jesus is ministering to people he grew up with. And Jesus, being a regular, normal human being, would have grown up as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old boy. These are the people who, you know, sent their kids out to play with, with Jesus and his brothers. And so we see that he has James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, his brothers. So Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She had other children. Jesus had four brothers and sisters. So you have at least, sisters is plural, right? So Mary had at least seven kids, including Jesus. And Jesus, growing up in this hometown, goes back to minister to his neighbors, his, his friends, maybe people who instructed him, who labored alongside of him as he grew up. Again, Jesus is probably in his early 30s when he begins ministry. So they've, they've known Jesus for a good long time. Jesus goes back. And how is he received? Well, he goes to the synagogue. They gather uh, for teaching and instruction in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And Jesus begins to teach them. And notice their response. They identify him, verse 54, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get what? Wisdom. So they identify two things about Jesus' ministry, wisdom and mighty works. So when they evaluate the ministry of Jesus, they're seeing something that's startling for them. 
Because they're asking a question that, that makes sense. It's like, this is Jesus, and, and this is the one we know about, and he's, he's doing something that's drastically unexpected for us. He is speaking with a wisdom that is not typical of a carpenter's boy. He sounds like an educated rabbi. He's an expert in the Old Testament is probably partly the point, isn't it? This guy knows his theology and seems to have had training that doesn't make sense. He's just a worker and a laborer. He's not, he's not been to Jerusalem to these rabbinical schools for years and decades of his life memorizing the Old Testament law and the Torah. He's just a guy like us. They're amazed by his wisdom, and they're amazed by his mighty works. Mighty works is reference to miracles. So, so Jesus is doing miracles. He is teaching them with a skill that, that makes them question where he got it from because it's so unnatural to their expectations. So what do you think the response would be on a hometown boy making it big? This guy comes in, and they know him. He's theirs. They own him, and he speaks, and it's jaw-droppingly profound and insightful and clear. And then they see him do miracle after miracle, and they see this one that they knew do these incredible things. And their response is, can we at least say disappointing? Their response is discouraging maybe even. Look back in the text. Their questions, verses 55 and following, they say, okay, so we need to evaluate this. Jesus has done something startling. He has broken out of the mold what we expect a man from our community to accomplish. We need to evaluate where this comes from. That is not an illegitimate question. I think that's actually something we should do with all communicators of divine truth. We should ask the question, where does this claim, where does this statement come from? Is this rooted in the revelation of God? Or is this rooted in his own imagination? Or perhaps even worse, is it rooted in satanic opposition? And because certainly Satan is pushing against the truth. Well, miracles, and frankly, even the insight from Scripture, should be a way in which we recognize God is validating truth. Okay, the primary purpose of miracles is, generally speaking, not a comfort. Jesus is not healing people because they're broken. He is healing them to give God glory and to show the trustworthiness of the grace he offers. Now, is it a blessing to broken, hurting people? Absolutely. But that's actually just a band-aid on man's sinfulness. The blind man's real problem is not that he can't see, but that his heart is evil. And he needs to be rescued from an evil heart, not from the fact he can't see. So Jesus heals the blind man, not simply to give him sight physically, but so that giving sight physically, that man would see that what Jesus says and who he claims to be is true. So when they say, where does Jesus get this from? Miracles are supposed to preach to them from God. 
The wisdom with which he pulls out Scripture and shows it to them should point to who he is. Jesus says the Old Testament Scriptures testify about him. So my guess is he's going to places like Isaiah 53, where we see this innocent man slain for the sins of the people. And he's saying, that's going to be me. And they say, wow, that's really wise. Wait, isn't he just a carpenter's son? Now, look at their questions. They give five questions. And you, you get the theme pretty quickly. Is this not the carpenter's son? Just as a little side note, the word carpenter probably is better understood to be builder. If Jesus is in a rocky place that's relatively treeless, and if you were to see the buildings in Nazareth, they're mostly stone. What do you think his building material usually was? So in many ways, just think more generically, Jesus was probably not working with lumber all the time as much as he is working with stones and other building materials available, which would have been mud, stone, and lumber to give it structure. But that's probably what Jesus' life was like. I think we usually picture him as working with two-by-fours and planks. And that's really probably a very artificial and modern way of viewing what Jesus was. So he's this regular Guy who works with his hands. He's a builder. Is not his mother called Mary? I think that's a funny question. Like, as though her name is relevant, but that's not the point. I think the point is identity. She's just a normal lady who lives in our town. Oh, yeah, Mary over on First Street. You know, like, they know who she is. And, and she's nobody special. She's just a lady. Well, not only that, and we're not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. I kind of want to assume that they have a bad reputation. I don't think that's the point again, but you know, like, oh man, yeah, Simon, that guy's a train wreck. Don't let your daughter date him. I, I don't think that's the point. You kind of wonder though. But, but I, I think again, the point just like with Mary is this guy's like the rest of us. We know his brothers, we know his sisters, we know his mom, it's Mary, she's over there, she lives in this, you know, place, her, her, you know, his dad is the carpenter, he's the carpenter's son, by the way, there's apparently only one carpenter in that town, I mean, that's a, it's a small little town, there's a single carpenter, builder, named Joseph, and Jesus is his son, he's a normal guy, finally, not, are not all sisters with us? Again, the same idea as the brothers. And then it's like coming back to this question, we circle back to it. So where did this man get all these things? I feel like that one has a little more weight to it than the first question. It starts off with, where, where is this coming from? Where is the wisdom and the miracles coming from? Now, after listing five questions, each question reinforcing he's just like us, just like us, just like us. It's almost like, and so who does he think he is? So Jesus ministers with miracles and wisdom, and the people respond to Jesus by stumbling. Look in verse 57. They took offense at him. Offense is one of those words that doesn't move well into the English language from Greek. Uh, when I hear people are offended, usually I think they're, they're somehow annoyed or bothered. You know, like, your little seventh grader burps at a restaurant when you have some, you know, friends that you're trying to impress, and they're kind of offended because your child was rude. 
That is not at all the idea of offense in Scripture. In fact, the Greek word is scandalizo, where we get our word scandal or scandalous. And the point is, is they look at Jesus and they see this up-jumped, blue-collar, untrained hick. And they're like, who do you think you are coming to our town and calling to us to do and respond to Scripture as though you are better than us? And the Bible says they, they stumbled to the point at which Luke records this. They try to kill Jesus. They try to push him off the edge of the cliff in Nazareth and kill him. And so clearly a little more than, oh, what a rude person. I don't like him. To the point at which they want to murder him. In fact, I think probably when we think of offense, um, you'll see this again in Romans 14 where you cause your brother to stumble. That's that word offense again. The point is, you cause them to lose faith. You cause them to apostatize or, or walk away from the faith. Well, let's just pause and consider for a moment. Who do you think the best preacher in all of human history is? <clears throat> if you didn't say Jesus, we need to send you back to Sunday school. The answer is always Jesus. Okay. Best preacher ever. Most insightful, clearest understanding of theology. I think we can, we can recognize that Jesus Christ is the prince of preachers. And he preaches and delivers miracles. So even if we were to say, hey, you know what? There, there are some people God is raising up in our world today. They're just incredibly gifted. When you hear them speak, it's like they could be talking about the most boring theological text, and you listen. And they teach, and you learn, and your heart is moved to be like Christ and to love him. And you're like, man, there's no way that, that Jesus could even be that good. Are they doing miracles all over? Because Jesus was. All right, so he's this incredible preacher they say is wise and they're startled because they wouldn't think anyone from their community that's just like them could be possibly as wise as Jesus in his exposition of scripture and he he stamps the authority of God on it with miracles of healings and rescue from sin no one no one could have been a better servant of God's word than Jesus and they still do what? They still reject the grace of our God. Now that is both encouraging for, for us, I think, at times. Have you ever met someone that you've pled with and you've tried to explain the gospel to and, and you've tried to share the truth with them and they don't receive it and maybe perhaps your discouraged thought was, if I only would have done it better. If Jesus came face to face with the hardness of men's sin and his preaching and miracles did not break the human heart, then please do not hear in this that Jesus was insufficient to the task, but that God in his providential plan and in his almighty, all-knowing works of grace 
he did not save. And we are left just to rest in God's work. Do you, do you, can you put yourself in Jesus' shoes? Sandals. His hometown. The kids he played stickball with. His neighbors he grew up with. He's preaching to the people he knows for 30 years and loves. And because they can't get over the fact it's Jesus, they try to kill him. He is the Son of God. He has never done them wrong. There has never been someone who embodied the gospel more. This idea that somehow if I live a righteous life, they will see the goodness of God in me and come to God. If anyone showed the goodness of God, it's Jesus. We put on ourselves a weight of responsibility the Lord himself did not put on his shoulders. So be careful. God uses messengers like us to carry the message of the gospel to people who are lost. But the message's power is never in the servant speaking. It's always in the spirit's working. It's always the spirit who opens the eyes of the blind to see the beauty of Christ. And in this case, for whatever reason, God in his goodness did not open the eyes of these people. And I can only imagine the same sorrow we experience when people don't accept Christ was felt by Christ himself. I think it's good for us to see that Jesus wrestles with rejection on a personal level to his ministry by people he loved. As we consider, so the people respond and stumble, Jesus has two responses back, and they both give us theological explanation, I think, that, or, or give us theological um, indicators where we need to be thinking. So they took offense of him in verse 57, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. So his point is something like the, the phrase we have in English, familiarity breeds contempt. That is, by, by saying Jesus is this boy we've known, we know that he's the carpenter's son, we know that he's the son of Mary, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Who does he think he is? They've identified all of these ways in which they're familiar with him, and then his rise to prophet of God and miracle worker is unacceptable to them because they know him. We, we do this in a sense. We see people from a distance and we, we kind of, I think the right word would be lionize them and idolize them and make them bigger than life. My guess is if you were to take any actor or athlete that's kind of on the screen in front of us on television and we imagine what they're like and then we were to meet them, they're normal people. We intellectually might know that, but we still expect more of them. I mean, it should make us like, kind of wonder every time we have one of these stories where you know, some celebrity falls into sin. It's like, well, of course, they're just like us. You think just because they have millions of dollars flowing through their fingers that they're not going to sin? Think of anything, that gives them access to more of it. Well, of course they're going to fall because they're just like us. But that's the problem, isn't it, with Jesus? is Jesus is too 
normal. He's too normal. Now, if, if you think through the theology of what God has done in redemption, this is precisely the purpose of Jesus' incarnation. We spent, we spent a few weeks ago talking about the incarnation as Jesus becoming man so that he could redeem mankind. Now, consider, consider the rejection of Nazareth. Ultimately, they've come to Jesus and they said, wow, you're saying these incredibly wise things, you're doing these miracles, but you're just a man. Therefore, we reject you. God redeemed us through someone who had to be, theologically, man. The very reason for rejection is, in fact, a necessary component of rescue. He's human. He's too human. He's too much like us. And yet the Bible says he had to be made like us in every respect. And I think there's nothing more going on here than what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 tell us about the gospel of God and the work of God's ministry. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 real quickly with me. I think this is helpful for us to understand. And Jesus is saying, the prophet is human. He's, he's, he's generally speaking, outside of Jesus himself, just a flawed human being. Now, Jesus is not flawed, but he's just a regular human being. That's probably the wrong way to say it. He is, he is a regular human being, just would maybe in, indicate that he's not more than that, but he's at least human. We come to 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross, I was going to say, he will read it much better than me. Uh, verse, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But uh, the, those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, here's what, here's what Scripture is telling us, that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is rejected as though it's foolishness by those who reject it. So, so what I expect is as we engage with people and try to share with them the truth of God's message, that the normal criticisms will reduce to this. I think what you believe is stupid. Now, they're not probably going to say that if they care about you because that's kind of offensive to say. But that's the point is both the content and the method of delivery, that is preaching in its content and its method, preaching itself, is considered folly by the measure of an unbeliever. So why is this? Verse 19, for it is written, I will do what? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. That ought to land like a ton of bricks on our hearts. There is a world of truth in these statements. Look down in verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, that is, God in his wisdom has decided that the world would not know God through what? Wisdom. Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. He concludes in verse 25, for the foolishness of God is what? The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The gospel ruins 
the pride of men. And if you hold on to pride, you do not get Christ. And, and there's, there's so much theological weight to what 1 Corinthians is saying that leads us back to Matthew 13. But if you sit in judgment over the scripture saying, I will decide what is true, you will get it wrong. Scripture demands that we position ourselves under God's judgment, not over him in judgment of what is true. So so here's how we sometimes misunderstand our gospel presentation. We do not appeal to people and say, you need to judge what is true. Rather, what we should say to them is, God sits in judgment over you. You need to determine whether or not you will submit to him or rebel and be judged. But there is one judge, and it's not you. But what we, what we often think of is that they sit in judgment of what is true. I want you to think about that for a second. I frequently use math as an analogy, so let me use it again. What math teacher starts that way? Hey, listen, two plus two is four, but I, you need to judge whether or not that's true. <laughs> I hope math teachers are kind. But if someone, some kid was, was in my class and I was not being kind and he says, I don't think so, teacher, I'd be like, I don't care what you think. It is. Because it, a child determining whether or not he agrees with two plus two being four is irrelevant to the truth. How much more so the God of creation who declares to us what is true it is true regardless of our response. Truth is not related to our acceptance of it. It's related to God, who in fact declares not that he only speaks truth, but in fact, God is truth. And all truth is relative to God. Whether or not we evaluate it, accept it, whether or not we try to judge it, we have no authority to do so. God is we come to this little city of Nazareth and we see this microcosm, this little model of humanity that they've judged Jesus as though they have the right. And they find him unacceptable, insufficient, because he doesn't live up to their expectations. Listen, you don't, you don't measure God by your expectations. You measure God by his expectations. And he always lives up to those. Your expectations invariably are self-centered. They're self-referential. That is, I want you to decide truth without, without measuring truth by your own wisdom. Go. Yeah, you can't unless you just submit to scripture and say, this is the measure of wisdom. This is the standard by which God is to be measured. And this leads us then to, I think, the righteous position of faith. Faith is in its essence, submission to God's revealed truth. Faith is rational, but it is not merely or exclusively rationalistic. Okay, if you didn't follow that, my point is this. 
I do not come to Scripture as an isolated human being that is able to, with reason and mental prowess, wrestle my way to God. In fact, the gospel is designed to make that a, a fruitless task. Instead, Scripture demands that I come to it and say, God, you are truth. I submit to all that you say. Now, I think I've got most Christians with me, but, but when I think through this in my life, it is so easy then to have little pockets where I don't quite submit to Scripture. Or I think that there's other pathways that I can legitimately pursue. But if God's truth reigns over all the universe, then I am able to engage in the battle for righteousness by submitting to that truth. So, for example, our world teaches us that, that sexuality is to be unleashed only or always as an expression of romantic love. And yet God says, no, sexuality is to be confined to marriage as an expression of love for marriage alone. And our movies and our books and our advertising industry declare God's word a lie. And God's word declares that a lie. The world in its rational thinking will never be able to move this direction without faith. So if you're struggling for sexual purity, there's a battle of faith that you must deal with. Do you believe God's word as a pathway to satisfaction in life, or do you reject it? Is God's word true? And that would take us back to gospel truth. God's word is thoroughly true. There is not one lie. There is not one dishonesty contained in the presentation of God's truth in Scripture. Now, the Scripture accurately records the history of people lying, but the Scripture itself does that truthfully, if that makes sense. In other words, we see liars in the Bible lying like they do, but the Bible truly presents it. So there are lies in the Bible while the Bible never lies. Have I confused you yet? Okay, I, I want to simply summarize the point. These people failed at at the essence of what Jesus called them to do, which was submit to God's truth. Because they sat in judgment over God's truth, and it didn't meet their expectations. They rejected God's truth. And look at Jesus' second response then. Nazareth misses God's salvation. If it's not clear in this text, Luke 4 makes it clear that they tried to kill Jesus. They rejected Jesus Christ. Verse 58, then he did not do many mighty works there because of their what? Their unbelief. Their unbelief caused Jesus Christ to respond by withdrawing his miracles and grace from them. And ultimately, I would say salvation. Right? There's, there's a sense in which by these people rejecting Jesus, they set themselves on a path of gracelessness. A lack, of, a lack of rescue from sin as well as the consequences of sin. I think this will lead us to a lot of theological um, 
fruit if, if we have time, and I won't take a ton of time, but let me just at least put my finger on these thoughts. Faith does not require God to work. I think that's a helpful thing for us to recognize in this passage because that might be our thought, is if they had believed, God would be a servant to them. And I don't think that's the point of the text. That is, if you believe, is God required to act? I think the answer is no. Otherwise, God becomes a slave to our faith. In fact, I think this is the falseness of, for instance, the prosperity gospel. If I truly believe and pray a blessing over it, then God will bless it. The only problem is, and the, and, and the marker of success or failure is my, my faith. If I believe it enough, he'll do it. And so you'll find someone praying over um, someone who's, who's in a hospital bed and near death and saying, if I just believe enough, then God must answer. No, no, no. God is not your servant. This is not the way that this works. Rather, the point here is that Jesus, as the sovereign Lord, will not honor a sinful response. Maybe I could like, at least make the analogy this way to help us grab a hold of this thought here. Faith is how we rightly submit to God's truth. And in that righteous relationship then, grace flows because God is the God of grace. So by analogy, let's consider that um, setting aside good parental training on hard work and ethics and stuff, one of my children, or perhaps one of your children, comes to you and says, hey dad, can I have this thing? Let's make it something valuable and worthy and good. A school textbook. Now, again, if you're trying to train your children to work hard, you might be like, well, if you do some chores and stuff and give me the money, I'll buy it. But I think most parents would be like, you know, this is good for you to have. I will get it for you. But if my child came to me and said, hey, dad, because I'm your kid, you must get me a textbook. I'd be like, must I? Like, that is literally what I would probably say. But, but, but that's almost as, as, as what the prosperity person would do or the faith healer type of person in our modern age would do, and that is I come to God, and by faith I am able to grab a hold of God's robe and yank his grace down in this place. Rather, if my daughter comes to me and there's a true need, she says, hey, Dad, would you please... What do most dads do? If it's a good request and worthy, they say absolutely. And sometimes even if it's just an extravagant, not need. I mean, when you're in right relationship with your parents or your kids, then kindness and generosity is part of that from a dad. Faith is the way in which we righteously relate to our Father in heaven and his righteous response to his children is to pour out grace. And I think if we see faith not as a work that leads God to give us favor, but a way to submit to God in righteous fellowship, that it opens up a righteous theology of God's grace. Because grace, by definition, is God giving us freely. That means he doesn't have to give it. What we don't deserve. We don't deserve it, which means we didn't get God to grudgingly give it to us. 
He gives it freely. That means he wants to give it. That's what grace is. And it's rooted in the work of Christ. So, so here's this picture of grace. These people, because they reject Christ, what do they get? I mean, imagine the sorrow of Jesus where he sees a longtime friend who's been in a tragic work accident, who is now broken for life and can no longer work to support his family, and he sees the scorn of that invalid at his preaching and power. And Jesus is thinking, if you would just believe, I would heal you. Instead, Jesus' friend whom he loves gets none of God's grace, remains broken physically and damned eternally because he cannot get over the fact that he grew up with Jesus as his play buddy. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that is for the Savior? Why do we believe what we believe? Because faith is essentially a submission to God's truth. So here's what we as God people, God's people have to ask. Will we put ourselves under the word of God and all of its expectations for us? Or do we make him live up to our expectations? Because if we, if we follow that second path and try to get God to live up to our expectations or measure him according to our expectations, we have to look no further than Jesus' hometown filled with neighbors and cousins and family members to see that God will not be gracious when we sit in judgment over him. But he will be very gracious when we submit in faith to him. This is actually what it means to present the gospel. This is really what the gospel is in its essence, isn't it? We come to someone and we say, hey, there is a king who made you. And he is king. Whether or not you want him to be, he is king. And you must fall under his authority and ask him for grace and rightly begin relating to him as king. And when you do, he will rescue all of those who, and we use the word trust, who trust in him as king and as savior, as the one who died for their sins, to bring them into right relationship with him who is king. That's the gospel message. Here there's gospel rejection because Jesus did not fit their expectations of a savior. And so they lost out on saving grace. They also lost out on on just the sweet healing grace of our savior. And so because Jesus did not live up to their expectations, they reject him completely. As we consider this text, there are so many ways in which the Lord should be working in our hearts, but at the least, we should call people not to judge whether or not scripture is true, but to submit to its truth. We should do that graciously. Again, scripture is, it's reasoned from God. So it's reasonable and rational, but we don't ask men to sit in judgment over it. We warn them that God sits in judgment over them. We call them to submit to it, to follow the Lord. Because when you do, there's grace and grace and grace upon grace. Forever, right? Forever, there's eternal life promised to all those who come and submit to the Lord. And so we call people to that. We also trust that if Jesus Christ, with all of his wisdom and all of his miracles, 
met resistance and people that did not believe that at times our faithful testimony, our faithful proclamation of the gospel, our prayers and our pleading will meet with people who resist King Jesus. And that is not to be taken as a failure on the gospel giver. And so we just trust the Lord to work when and where he will. So let me just say a word to you. If you are an unbeliever, that is, you, you, you are even now not sure whether you should believe what Scripture says, you should recognize that the battle is not necessarily about the truth claims of Scripture as much as one about the kingship of Jesus. You don't want to not be boss. We all want to be our own boss. And so it's a real question of submission. Will you put yourself under the Lord as your Savior and as your King? Or do you want to remain independent, evaluating truth and evaluating decisions on your own and living independently of God's assessment? Because he'll give you enough leash. But one of these days when you are coming to your grave and your leash is ending, you will find yourself under the permanent and eternal kingship of Christ regardless of what you do in this life. Those who enter in right relationship are saved. Those who enter as rebels will be condemned forever. So trust, submit today. Follow Jesus today. And Christians, we could have walked through a Bible reading kind of passage and said, hey, read your Bibles this year. Like, read your Bible every day. Okay, just, just for application. How many of you have ever been convicted and decided to read your Bible every day? Keep your hand up if you've done that. Right? Like, like reading your Bible every day is one of those disciplines very few of us do. So, so maybe make a sincere commitment this year to enter into your scripture reading with a soft heart that says, Lord, teach me and I will submit and I will worship. Just that. Every time I touch scripture in my mind, in my heart, every time it's preached, every time I read scripture, I will submit. And I will find a way to exalt Jesus as king of my life and I will call others to look at him as their king. Just make that commitment. And my guess is your, your Bible reading is going to get energized. So that would be my New Year's like tag on this sermon. Now it's a good New Year's sermon because of just that. Let's pray and ask the Lord to work in our hearts and strengthen us. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it shapes us. Father, forgive us for thinking that we have a right to enter into your presence and read your scripture and act as though we are judge over it. It stands in, in clear assessment of us, telling us where we have fallen short of the glory of Christ, instructing us how to respond by seeking forgiveness through confession when we have sinned and fallen short of that glory. So, Father, we thank you for the um, unimpeachable, perfect, good scripture that stands as a word from the king leading us and guiding us and judging us. And Father, we thank you that it also gives us messages of forgiveness and promises of grace for those who rightly relate to you. So Father, I pray especially for those in this room who at this point stand unsure of who Jesus is. Father, I pray that today they would embrace Jesus as their king as their Savior, and they would give themselves over to Jesus, giving themselves to be obedient to his kingship and following him whatever the cost. 
And Lord, by doing that, I pray that that trust would be a saving, rescuing faith in Jesus that would redeem them and give them eternal life. Father, please, would you save people in this church and in this community who are here today. Father, I I ask that you would strengthen us with gospel hope so that this year would mark out a year in which our church family was faithful to call people to come to Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would do these things because it is only by the strength that the Spirit gives that we do these things to please you. And it's only by his Spirit that people are saved. It is only by uh, this grace that, that you are doing and working. And so we pray for grace upon grace. In Jesus' name, amen.